Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of 97.1 The Fan. I'm Daniel Barnett. In just a moment, I'll be speaking with Terry Redican about advanced placement classes and the benefits they offer for students and parents alike. In about 10 minutes, our own Dave James will be speaking with Arthur Lupia and Bethika Khan from the National Science Foundation about America's declining role in science and technology advancement on the global stage. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light will have a roundtable discussion about how to interpret national political polls as we lead up to the March primaries here in Ohio and how to spot fake campaign materials on Facebook and the like when we see them. And I'll wrap up the hour speaking with David Gottlieb, a financial advisor from Northeast Ohio, about how people can have a better relationship with their money. That's coming up this hour on Columbus Perspective. It's right around that time of year when many high school students are starting to consider what courses they will be taking next school year. And for parents and students alike, many of them may be considering advanced placement courses. Thanks for staying tuned to Columbus Perspective. I'm Daniel Barnett. Today I'm speaking with Terry Redican. Terry is the AP Vice President of the College Board, and he's here today to talk to us a little bit about what advanced placement classes are and why they can mean big savings for parents and students down the line. Terry, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be with you. Terry, for those of us who are unfamiliar with the concept, can you fill us in on what exactly advanced placement classes are? Yes, uh, happy to. Uh, AP courses are college-level courses in high school, and the benefits of AP are real. Students can earn credit to save them time and money in college. And college admissions officers, they tell us they're looking for students who challenge themselves by taking courses like AP. And that's because students who take AP, they develop critical thinking, reasoning, communications, and other skills that help them be prepared for college. In fact, research shows all students who take AP exams, regardless of score, are more likely to enroll in a four-year college and more likely to return for a second year, keeping them on track for that college degree. So after taking an advanced placement or AP class, then one takes the AP exam that corresponds with that class. Fill us in, if you would, about what the benefits are for a high school student to take one of these AP exams. Yeah, so so the AP course um, is built around um, a college-level uh, class and the content and skills that are specific to that course. Um, and so nearly all U.S. colleges and universities grant credit and placement for qualifying AP scores on that end-of-year exam that's taken in May. So that's a score of three, four, or five on a scale of one to five. So when a student earns credit, they can send their scores anywhere. You know, by contrast, other grant credit granting programs may not transfer to so many different colleges. Um, and beyond the thousands of college-specific AP credit policies, there's now 31 states that have policies that guarantee a student will receive college credit for earning a three or higher. Um, and in fact, Ohio is one of those states that have a guarantee. Beginning back in 2009, um, Ohio's articulation and transfer policy um, guaranteed uh, credit for scores of at least three. Terry, do you have any figures on how much Ohio students are taking advantage of these AP courses? I know that Ohio is a, is a, is a state where lots of students are trying to take advantage of AP and get the benefits. You know, I was looking at some numbers. Um, it's on the range of about 75,000 students across Ohio are uh, taking advantage of the AP program. And it's, it's just great to see um, so many students, you know, have some awareness of this. So what kind of AP course offerings are out there? I'm assuming things like English and algebra have an AP version, but 
Are there some other courses that are a bit more, let's say, off the beaten path? Yeah, so we have 38 AP courses. So that's 38 different college-level courses that you can take in high school. And you could group them by uh, different academic disciplines. For example, you know, STEM courses, science, technology, engineering, and math that are so, you know, talked about these days because of the opportunities, the career opportunities that come when you know science, technology, engineering, and math. We also have courses in the humanities. So as you mentioned, AP English and courses like that. Um, we have um, we have social sciences, social studies, um, histories, government politics, those kinds of courses. And then we have arts, art and design, music theory. So it really runs the academic gamut in terms of different types of courses. And we've got tool a tool online that can help students figure out, you know, which courses might be right for them. Um, they can access a tool called AP Potential. Um, through their SAT or their PSAT score report, and it shows based on a student's strengths which of the 38 AP courses might be the best fit for them. For example, if a student scored well in the math section, you know, the score report might show an increased potential of success in something like AP stats or statistics or physics or one of the other AP STEMs. Um, it also maps the college major, so it maps which of the AP courses and exams map well with the different college majors they might be interested in. So that's a tool that's good to use with your counselor or teachers or parents or anyone who's helping you try and figure out, you know, among these 38 courses, which one might be right for me. I took some AP classes myself when I was in high school, so I know they've been around at least that long. What are some of the newer offerings that you have uh, as far as AP classes go? Yeah, the AP program's been around over 60 years, uh, but it continues to evolve. Um, we've got a number of new courses that are really exciting. Uh, one on the, the first one I'll mention is Computer Science Principles. This course uh, introduces students to the foundational concepts of computer science. It's really a, co a computer science course for everyone. It includes some coding, but it's not only about coding. Students do hands-on projects where they learn how computer science applies to a wide range of potential career options out there. You know, really neat things like app development, 3D animation, robotics, and more. It's a very accessible course. And then there's AP Capstone. That's a really popular new two-course sequence. It includes AP Seminar and the other class is AP Research. And these are skills-based courses. And, and what that means is that teachers help students identify a topic of interest to them, a passion, and they do projects on that topic where they learn college-level research skills, presentation skills, and more. And so those are some of the new offerings um, as, as APs evolved that students and, and teachers alike are really responding favorably to. Now, is there any cost associated with taking an advanced placement course? Yeah. So, so you know, while an AP course can save thousands of dollars in college credit, you know, developing and scoring AP exams, you know, there, there's a cost to doing that. You know, we bring in 18,000 college faculty and AP teachers every June to, to hand score, you know, 25 million um, uh, free response, uh, free responses from students. And so, you know, the, the, the cost for an AP exam, the regular cost is $94. Um, but students um, can qualify for fee reductions. And so they should check in with their counselor or their AP coordinator in their school to find out what's available and how they can qualify. The College Board has a fee reduction available for students. And then depending on the school or the district, um, there may be some additional fee reductions that, that make the exams affordable for everyone. And so, you know, we, we, we hope that, that, that cost won't be a barrier. But, um, you know, we we, 
that, that's 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 a little bit more about the the, the fee structure and um, but the economics of AP are something we're very happy to see students take advantage of when they can earn that credit and save the thousands of dollars in in in, in college cost. Now students are preparing for an AP exam. Are there resources out there like practice tests or uh, tutors to help them get ready for those AP exams? Yes, yes. In fact, we've got a. I mean, we've had resources available for some time, but we have a really neat new offering that launched at the beginning of this school year. It's available to students in Ohio and nationwide. It's called AP Classroom. And these are new resources online available at no additional cost. Um, with help from teachers, AP students have access to thousands of practice questions, and when they do them, they get personalized feedback that helps them track their learning progress over the course of the year. And it really reinforces throughout the year the skills needed for success in the AP exam. And if folks want to learn more about advanced placement classes or exams, I'm assuming you have an online resource for that. Yeah, students can learn more about that um, on our website if they go to exploreap.org. They can learn uh, much more about that. I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to to speak to your radio listening audience or your your podcast audience, and um, you know, get the word out about just the opportunities that are available. So, for more information, you can go to our website, exploreap.org, and learn more about what we talked about and much more. Once again, I've been speaking with Terry Redekin, the AP Vice President at the College Board. Terry, thank you so much for filling us and our listeners in on the advanced placement course options that students are going to have as they're looking for their classes for next year. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll be back with more on Columbus Perspective in just a moment. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Kelsey Wiggins, a teacher in Gilmore City Bradgate School District in Iowa. Thanks to a science, technology, engineering, and math grant sponsored by Bear Fund, we renovated an old locker room into a monarch butterfly incubator, providing students with access to innovative technology that engages and inspires them. I encourage farmers to nominate a school district to apply for a $15,000 Grow Rural Education grant by visiting americasfarmers.com. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone are uh, Arthur Skip Lupia, who is Assistant Director of the National Science Foundation and also Program Director Bethika Khan. How are you? Good, Good thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, you are out with a report looking at the decreasing share of America's part of the global science and engineering field, which uh, is pretty disturbing, I guess, for folks who find that that is very important. It's uh, Yeah, it's an interesting time. Um, so the indicators report is uh, required by Congress, and it comes out every two years. 
and it's meant to be the most comprehensive and policy-neutral source on the U.S.'s global competitiveness on science and engineering. So the headlines are, are still that we have U.S. leadership. We, our country invests the most in R&D, we attract the most venture capital in science, we award the most doctoral degrees, and we attract the most international students. And that's really been true since the 1950s. Uh, but the story is that we have increasing competition. And so our global share in these activities has been decreasing while countries like China are really growing. I was looking at some of the uh, reports online that you have, uh, lots of graphs and information, and uh, it seems like almost all of the graphs showed China just spiking in just about everything. Absolutely. Uh, so since 2000, uh, the U.S. has increased its spending in science, research, and development by about 4 or 5% a year. During that same period, uh, China's increase in investment has been about 17% per year. So that's you know 17% year after year. So they really are becoming a, a global force in science. If you want to compare the numbers that Kip cited uh, with uh, India and South Korea, they have also seen quite rapid growth rates in their R&D spending in the 8 to 10% range. Why is this important? How does this hurt uh, the U.S. down the line? Where, where might it impact us? Well, what's interesting is it's, it's kind of a, it can have a broader impact. I mean, so another thing that is in this report is the extent of collaboration between American scientists and Chinese scientists. So today, about 40% of the research articles that are produced in the United States are co-authored with scholars from other, uh, other countries. And uh, our biggest collaborator is China, and in turn, China's bigger collaborator is us. So it's not all a competition story. Uh, in a lot of cases, there's cooperation. But there are certain strategic areas where uh, we are in competition with China, and that's where uh, both the government and the private sector have incentives to be a little more strategic uh, in how they interact. Does some of this have to do with, you know, I'm just kind of thinking when I was a kid, you know, the Apollo program was huge, and I could see where that would get some kids interested in math and science and engineering and that kind of thing. And But, you know, when you look back in the last 20, 30 years, maybe Apple and Microsoft might do the same thing, except that they've relied on a lot of their production in China and other places around the world. They've become global companies, whereas NASA, of course, was anything but global back in those days. Does that have an impact on the influence on kids? Well, uh, the report, uh, we don't have data about what influences kids. I mean, I think that's a great question. But what's certainly true is that over time, when you see big tech, whether it's aerospace or automobile manufacturing or computers or electronic parts, there is a, a great uh, internationalization where companies like Apple have production and research in, in, in a lot of different countries. Uh, what's great about right now is uh, America still is the leader in so many fields. But a, as you noted, we are in this domain now where the auto companies and the aerospace companies and, and uh, computer science, uh, they're increasingly international activities. How does Ohio stack up among other states in some of these areas? Well, uh, Ohio is, is doing great in some ways. Um, so in amongst the, the states that are around the same size and population as Ohio, uh, Ohio spends um, about $12 billion a year in research and development. Uh, so, so that's uh, interesting, although the growth rate in Ohio, I have to say, has been slower since 2000 than other states. If you take a state like Oregon, for example, which is a little smaller, um, over the last, since 2000, uh, research and development spending in Ohio has increased about 12%, whereas in Oregon it's increased over the same period of time at about 150%. Um, so, so there are some differences there. Uh, when it comes to venture capital, 
uh, Ohio has really maintained its pace. So in 2017, there was about $371 million of venture capital uh, spent in Ohio on science and engineering. So in some places, Ohio is doing great, and in others, it's kind of in the middle. Well, uh, the workforce number. So the the, the percentage of the workforce that's in technical occupations in Ohio, again, is very close to the national average, around 6%. So uh, going back to Skip's point that along certain dimensions, Ohio is right in the middle. I looked at some of the uh, the grade uh, proficiency standards and things like that and uh, eighth graders in Ohio. It looks like they do pretty good in math and maybe a little bit lagging, at least compared to math and science. How important are those kind of statistics uh, looking at how kids in the elementary and secondary schools are doing mm-hmm. in, in these categories? Yeah, well, you know, so many people believe that uh, jobs of the future, the industries of the future, depend on having, a, you know, a basic competence in mathematics and science. And so, you know, there's a nationwide effort to really improve these scores. Um, as a nation, uh, the United States is now in the middle of comparable countries and how our eighth graders and 12th graders do on these scores. And I think what is more interesting is that the scores really haven't moved in the U.S. in about a, in about a decade so for people who want to see growth and improvement, uh, the statistics show us that just across the country, we have some work to do. Talking with Skip Lupia, he's assistant director of the National Science Foundation and also program director Bathika Khan. What do you do with this report? Where, where does it go from here? We went both to the House and to the Senate, and we had great uh, energetic audiences who want to understand where we've been, because this report really is the most up-to-date and comprehensive. There's so much data in this report. Uh, it really helps us understand what has been going on. And so uh, policymakers like to use this report to think about science policy and uh, where should we invest and how should we think about education and how should we think about strategic investments uh, with respect to uh, international collaboration, collaborations with industry and so forth. So it really is a, a source of data that you know government uses a lot, but also uh, private industry uh, in, in understanding uh, science trends and where, you know, when looking at a state like Ohio, thinking, okay, what are the opportunities there as opposed to other states? I think I saw that there's even, uh, you've even got charts in there about teacher pay for math and science and uh, things like that. I mean, there's a lot of information that a lot of different groups of people can learn things from. No, Dr. Khan, I was going to throw it to you. That she's the, uh, <laughs> she directs this program, and it is so amazing, just the, the incredible amount of data they put in. Well, when this used to be in print and they put it out, it looked like a Sears catalog. But now they have this amazing new website. I don't know, if Dr. Khan, if you can talk about everything that, that's in it, but it's an incredible project. Sure. Thank you. So, yes, the report covers a wide variety of topics, education, workforce, R&D, innovation, public attitude, you know, whatever you want to know about the SME enterprise. It's here. So for your listeners, I wanted to share where the report is available www.ncses.nsf.gov slash indicators. So ncses.nsf.gov slash indicators. And as as Kip said, the report is, it's a new report. And we want to hear uh, how the report is working for for our users. So we want feedback. It's a lot of complicated information, but it's user-friendly because there's an awful lot of graphics in it. And that allows, uh, you know, a pretty pretty basic understanding of, of the points that are trying to be made in it. It's, it's good stuff. We provide bite-sized information as well as the more detailed information. So if you want to just, you know, read a few sentences about a topic, it's all there. Skip, anything else to add? 
No, I just wanted to compliment, you know, uh, Dr. Khan and her team. It really is an amazing thing to take this data, which is very complex, and it comes from all different sources. And if you visit the website or you look at the report, just how practical the information is, how easy it is to understand, it's a real testament to the work of the people at the National Science Foundation, uh, the National Center for Science and Engineering Statistics, and the National Science Board. Okay. Uh, Skip Lupia, Assistant Director, National Science Foundation, and Program Director, Bathika Khan. And again, you can find all this information at the National Science Foundation's website. Thanks so much for the information. Sure appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. We'll be back with more on Columbus Perspective in just a moment. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Jelly Jelly Adjective Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on 97.1 The Fan. I'm Daniel Barnett. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Ohio's primary is almost a month away to the day. But while President Trump doesn't have a whole lot of competition on his side, these Democrats looking to win the nomination have a lot to do before that. And a lot of that involves campaigning, politics and polling. We're going to talk about it all first. I want to say good morning to you. Welcome to Face the State. We're glad you're with us. I've got a great group of guests this morning. Let me introduce you to them. Linda Bowers is here. She is former director of the Ohio Township Association and current Lafayette Township trustee. Mark Weaver's back with us. He does a little bit of everything. He's an author, media law attorney, crisis communications advisor, and also adjunct professor. Molly O'Shaughnessy is a principal at EMC Research. She is an expert in political research and polling. And Democratic State Representative Erica Crawley is back at the Face the State table. She's a lawyer, military veteran who serves Ohio's 26th district. Welcome all. It's good to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you here. I know that nothing says excitement like an hour-long YouTube webinar that I sent all of you, by the way, on election polling. But folks, hang with us here. We're going to make it exciting because we're going to dive into right out of the gate here. Lessons learned in polling from 2016 now to 2020. 
20. So take a look at some research here. We're kind of doing fact versus myth. And the folks at Real Clear Politics laid out what they say are these facts from 2016, that yes, state level polling, it was underfunded and it was poorly conducted. They also said that we saw state level problems, especially here in the Midwest. And think about it. It was the Midwest that delivered Donald Trump his victory. But on the national polling side, these folks say that it was very accurate on the national side by historical standards. So, Molly, you're our expert here. Start us off. You're our leadoff hitter here. Um, what are your lessons from 2016 when it comes to polling heading into this year? Yeah, you're right, Scott. The national polling, which has the best funding, is very accurate um, when you're looking at those public polls of the popular vote. However, we all know that's not how the election is actually conducted. Um, and, and reading into those, um, those publicly uh, released state polls, you get a lot of bad polling, um, very cheaply done. Good polling costs money. Um, mm. And there, this cycle, we're going to see an even bigger gap between the way polling is being done inside the campaigns and the way polling is being done in public polling. Mm. Um, and a lot of the, the public polling that we see out there is very mixed quality. Okay. I know you love digesting this kind of data. What do you think? I do. I used to teach polling at the University of Akron. One of the challenges we face with polling in modern America is, number one, uh, these are telephone polls, and fewer people pick up the phone if they don't know who's calling. So it's harder to reach respondents. Number two, people, because of the partisan divide, are less likely to speak honestly about how they feel about politics because they don't know who the person on the other line supports. Mm. Those two factors have made it much more difficult for pollsters to get good numbers. Okay. Representative, as somebody who, when you're running for office, you rely on polling and you rely on research. What is that like in your world? I mean, I think, um, especially after we looked at the video that you sent and looking at how the state polling um, had a lot of inaccurate data or when it came to um, 2016 and even 2018 when people were um, asked about who they supported for different races, um, a lot of people are undecided. And I think we see the same now with the primary. There are a lot of undecided voters and we really can't rely on it um, or what the polls are saying because it will probably come down to game time decision um, mm. and how people are making their choices, especially as we approach the primary. Well, and to that point, the folks at Real Clear Politics said the, the late breakers in terms of 2016 in the presidential uh, race, they went for Donald Trump in terms of the folks who were making up their decisions late in the game. Linda, what do you think about all this? I want to thank you for the homework. <laughs> <laughs> did everyone do it? I know Representative I did. did. Okay, I everyone did. watched. Okay. Well, I, I, I think... For, uh, unlike the other folks at the table, you know, I, I look at the results of those polls, not necessarily how they're how they're done, um, and the misinterpretation of the information, or more to the point, the manipulation of the information. Um, you know, polls come in and they have a margin of error, but that's not what we hear about. That's not what we talk about when we read it in the newspaper. Or we hear it on the newscasts. You know, you just look at that top and bottom number. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And nationally, a lot of people think normal people, local people that, that aren't involved in it intimately think that the pollsters got it wrong when they really didn't. Mm -hmm. The national polls were very, very accurate. Mm -hmm. It's just how you interpret that information. Well, and too, I mean, and, and, and listen, there's some there's some blame here on the media side in terms of sometimes we, we phrase it too much, getting to your point, 
in terms of the horse race. You know, here are the top two candidates in this particular poll. But also to your point, let's fast forward a little bit from 16 to 2018, because we also looked at the House of Representatives polling heading into 2018. And the polling said kind of the generic Democratic candidates had a seven point lead. And in actuality, once everything was counted up after the midterms, the Democratic candidates won by eight points. So, again, that's one of those uh, situations, again, where on the national side, it was pretty accurate. Um, Mark, what will you be looking for? Or let me back up. Are there certain polls where you'll say, you know what, you, Acme Polling, I'm not reading you, but you over here, I am going to take a look at your tabs and what you did. Sure. There are some companies that do automated robocall polling. They tend to be less accurate than others. Another thing is, who are you polling? If you're polling all Americans, that's not a good political poll. If you're polling all registered voters, that's not a particularly good. You want likely voters, and you want the screen for likely voters to be not just the person telling you they're likely to vote, but you base it on their voting record to see that they actually have voted in the last few elections. And that is the big gulf between public polling and internal campaign polling is that public polling um, doesn't usually start from past voter history, uh, which internal campaign polling does, and they don't put in the resources to reach people Mm. on landlines, mobile phones, by text and online, uh, which is what the vast majority of all internal campaign polling is doing. So Mark's right, you know, those those, uh, robo response polls are some of the lowest quality out there. Also, I was looking at some of the Midwestern polls, and again, a lesson learned from 2016 is that um, evidently college graduates were oversampled in some right. polls. That's a that's a sort of a known bias in um, in voter polling that a lot of the public pollsters weren't correcting for. They were really looking at uh, you know census data on age, um, gender, and saying this is our this is our sample. And they and they weren't looking at the the, the bias in uh, education levels. Mm. And that really is more than sort of the concept of a shy Trump voter in 2016. It was really the sample was bad. It, there's no there's no evidence that people were misrepresenting their actual views. The easiest thing to do is tell the truth and get off the phone right. or finish the text or whatever. Um, but it, it, was a, it was a poor sampling issue in some of those state polls. Okay. There's a certain amount of work that the pollsters do at the beginning by choosing the sample and at the end by weighting the sample. These are all legitimate polling things to do, but it does require guesswork on the part of the pollster to when you're choosing the sample and when you are waiting the, the, the results at the end. And as a result, two different universities might do the sampling and the weighting differently. You could get two different outcomes mm. from the same university. The art and the science of it, I and guess. And there's some less reliable companies out there, too, that, that, that kind of pander to different organizations and candidates, and, and, and they their messaging isn't done in such a way that they get the answer that they want, so now they can advertise that this is what had happened. So there's yeah, there's exactly. one company out there, we won't say it, but it's got three initials. I was being careful. Initial, and they love to do polls that will immediately get media coverage, and because they... With they the answer lean, they want. Yeah, they lean yeah. towards one party, then yeah. the media follows the poll. And, and the responsible media companies study up on companies yes. like that, whether it's you know left or right, and, and we'll put that right, in context. Um, I love a Sunday when basically a host isn't needed. You guys are off to a great Great start. Love it. Let's continue the conversation on the other side of a commercial break with this. A local endorsement for a candidate who wasn't even in the New Hampshire primary but is moving up. Former Mayor Michael Coleman's words about another Michael for president. Plus a fight over transgender rights. We're going to explain it all. Coming up next. This Girl Scout cookie season, we Girl Scouts would like to say thank you, America. 
Thank you, cookie cravers, thin mint enthusiasts, peanut butter patrons, shortbread devotees. Every time you take a bite of a Girl Scout cookie, it's good for us. Your coconut and caramel cravings are our chance to practice goal setting. Your midnight snacks help us learn to manage money. Your freezers aren't just full of tasty treats. They're packed with entrepreneurship. That's right, entrepreneurship. You probably can't taste the business ethics or the decision-making or the people skills, but they're in there in every single mouthful. Every time you eat what's in the box, we learn how to think outside of it. So raise a glass of milk and raise our chances to reach our potential. Eat up, America. We're counting on you. I'm Catalina. I'm Melody. I'm Katie. I'm Devin. I'm Hannah. I'm Abby. I'm Juliana. I'm Nicole. I'm Olivia. I'm Colette. I'm Stefania. And we approve this message. The Girl Scout Cookie Program. Think outside the box. Some knowledge belongs to us and us alone. The way our girlfriends walk. The way they talk. The way they touch their hair. We hold details that only a sister can know about her girls. But what about our other girls? The ones that we carry with us every day. Can we describe them when everything's right? Can we feel when something's wrong? Our bond with our sister girls gives life. But knowing your breasts can save it. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. That's knowyourgirls.org. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. Mike Bloomberg is a uniter, not a divider. And in our country today, when so often, when I see it today, we are so divided as a nation, uh, we have... The, this corner and that corner. That is former Columbus Mayor Michael Coleman endorsing another Michael Bloomberg. It happened on Wednesday, so a few days ago. Coleman laid out what he called his seven reasons for his endorsement, ranging from Bloomberg's commitment to addressing gun violence and climate change to improving lives in America's inner cities. Coleman also said he believes Col- or Bloomberg is the candidate with the best chance to defeat Donald Trump. Welcome back, everyone. Let's keep talking about it with Linda Bowers, Mark Weaver, Molly O'Shaughnessy, and Representative Erica Crawley. Now, I know endorsements don't have the sway that they used to. I looked at this one, though, in terms of optics in this way. You've got an historic local African-American mayor endorsing another mayor who still has serious questions to answer about certain policies, specifically stop and frisk in New York City. Representative, would you start us off here? How do you view this endorsement coming from the former mayor of Columbus? Uh, I think it's a great endorsement for Bloomberg to pick up uh, the endorsement from um, Mayor Coleman. Um, I, mayor Coleman is very respected here in Columbus and uh, for his policies that he has implemented and changing Columbus over the past 16 years that he was in office. And so um, I, I think it has really great credibility. I do think, however, that um, as we've seen in the news, all the past week with um, Bloomberg having to answer for stop and frisk. So I don't know that that the endorsement by Mayor Coleman will stop the questions. I think he really needs to answer um, for that policy. Well, I think there are a lot more questions coming, especially once Bloomberg is on that debate stage, and rightly so. Um, 
Molly, you mentioned the Quinnipiac polling that they do. Quinnipiac just had a national poll that puts Bloomberg at 15% already. Money can buy you love. Yes, yes. The, uh, I mean, uh, he, Biden's support among African Americans went from, you know, 51 to 22%, something like that, mm-hmm. uh, 27 maybe, and Bloomberg shot up over the same period among African Americans. Um, you know, he's he is... He is going to get to his ceiling a lot faster than another candidate will because of the total saturation of money that he's putting into the race. And I think that's the question is, where is where is that ceiling? Where is that ceiling, do you think? Well, this will be a big test we're watching. I remember when Trump ran, I I told a national reporter that we'll see how serious this guy is if he puts his own money in. Of course, he did not put much of his own money in. Bloomberg has shown he's serious. He is putting historical amounts of money. We will study this race for years. I do not Mm -hmm. think he'll be the Democrat nominee, by the way, but we will study this race for years to see how many percentage points he gets in the polls as a result of, or in the final election results, as a result of the crazy amount of money he's spending. What makes you think that he won't be the nominee? I, well, first of all, he got in a little late, and so the way the, the way the um, the way the delegate system works is very difficult. And I think Bernie Sanders is going to stay near the top towards the end. And this party, the Democratic Party, will face a dramatic uh, fissure or. Um, division mm-hmm. if Bernie Sanders is denied by the establishment yet again. Mm-hmm. A lot of his folks will may go home. A lot of them might even vote for Trump, which is th- crazy when you think about how far left Bernie is. But there's a lot of anger amongst Bernie Sanders folks that they are not being respected by the Democrats. And, and they did, again, the research shows that a lot of them, by the tens of thousands of Sanders voters in 2016, did go yeah. to Donald Trump. Exactly. How do you view Mike Bloomberg in all this? I was just talking about thinking about the endorsements in general. Um, The endorsements tend to be, from what I've observed, tend to be more about turnout than so much how they affect the the actual vote. You know, I I think Mark's right on that Bloomberg got in late. I think the delegate situation is going to be difficult for him. He's still got some catch-up to do. Mm -hmm. He might make some up. But I don't think he'd make up enough. Yeah, we'll see. And, and, we'll see on Super Tuesday. That'll and the, uh, the, the, the Sanders issue when it comes down to the end, I mean, that's going to be a real day of reckoning for the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, so let's ask our Democratic lawmaker and friend here at the table. <laughs> is there an identity crisis for your party in that the party is trying to decide, all right, do we go progressive left or do we go eh, moderate left, a little left of center? I, I think so. I think that there is an identity crisis. I think we're trying to fin- figure out, um, one, messaging, um, but two, also um, who can beat Donald Trump and um, also really uh, put forward the policies that Democrats want to see nationwide. And I can say for Bloomberg, um, when it comes to African Americans and their votes, he has really put in a lot of money um, and, and has shown up by people who he's hired and coming into Ohio several times to speak uh, to people in the community to learn about, you know, what's important to them, even uh, answering the tough questions and trying to figure out what is the black agenda. Let's bring it back here to Ohio in this sense. Let's talk about a couple of things that happened at the Ohio State House this week. A group of conservative lawmakers came together Tuesday to announce legislation that they were working on to restrict gender identity medical treatments for transgender young people. Let me put a couple of bullet points here on the screen. This legislation, again, it's being talked about at this point, would ban certain procedures for people under 18. So we're talking about minors. It would also criminalize charge doctors who perform some of these procedures. There are opponents out there who say this pits the Hippocratic Oath against the law. 
Why don't you start us off here, Linda? Is this isn't this isn't this a private matter between parents, children, doctors, and therapists? Well, the the proponents would tell you that we regulate drinking age, we regulate buying cigarettes for young people, and all of those things, and those tend to be medical issues. Um, the difficulty that I have is the bill is still in draft, so while we know what the goal might be, we really don't know what it says or what it's going to say. So I think the kind of the the jury's still out. I don't know. What, is it going to go to the Social Justice Committee? Is it going to go to the Health Committee? We just don't know what's going to be in it yet. So it's kind of hard to really have an opinion at this point. Well, the big picture, though, is clear. Science yeah. matters, just like in climate science matters. For nearly everyone in the world, you're either XX chromosome or you're XY chromosome. And children don't fully mature till 25. Their brain doesn't fully mature. Nearly oh, the vast majority of children who have some gender identity issue will eventually move away that, and they will identify with their with what their biological sex is and the notion of operating on them or giving it's them... It's irrevocable. In many cases exactly. it is, is, is a very troubling thing. Now, an adult who wants to do something, that's a completely different thing altogether. An adult who makes an adult choice to do it, but the notion of children, having this done to children, we regulate child abuse in Ohio. We should regulate this. So I mean, we're talking about criminalizing potentially life-saving health care treatment for children, a population that is known to have at least triple the risk of suicide in their life. The Cincinnati Children's Hospital says most of these treatments are reversible if there ever was a situation like that. Uh, these are, these are, this is just another example of a small handful of Republicans in the legislature who want to get between a family and their doctor in, in a, a situation that for many kids is a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. Representative? Yeah, I would agree. I think that um, we have colleagues in the legislature that are extreme in some of their policy and I think when they label this as just an identity crisis um, that children are going through it devalues the real lived experiences that families and children are experiencing and so I just think that this is an overreach. Um, The language still is in draft so it will be interesting to see you know what um, all it entails but I think at the end of the day we need to leave these decisions to families and their doctor um, and and let them, uh, you know, follow the course that they think is best for them. Okay. And these are mainstream treatments, American Medical Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, Nationwide Children's Hospital is a, is a national leader in this it's not right here in Columbus. to tell a boy with XY chromosome that he's a girl. Imagine telling an anorexic girl that she's fat, and imagine a doctor putting her on weight loss treatment or giving her liposuction. She's not fat. She's dangerously thin. This is science gone mad. It's gone political. And the vast majority of Ohioans will support this legislation if it makes through. It is not mainstream at all. And aren't the committee meetings going to be exciting? But, oh, but, sure. but are, in, in this case, it, just about with so much in American life, if it affects a minor, parents have to consent for the most part. So parents are making these decisions. Well, they can't with consent their, to abuse, right? That kids. would be illegal. A, a, a parent would be charged with a crime if they consented to abuse. And so this this comes down to abuse. Again, an adult wanting to make that decision as an adult is a much different discussion than a child who we all have, those of us who have children, we know that kids have lots of ideas about who they are and what's going on in the world, and they change sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly. If they survive to adulthood, and then then uh, we can we can litigate so those things later. After people have changed but we Gender. see that it continues, that continues at a very high rate. It's and not it, because of this. And it continues um, among 
uh, youth between the ages of 10 and 14. And so we see that, yes, suicide continues after 18, but the, it increases and continues to increase dramatically among our adolescents. And the suicide rate is much lower for people whose gender is being affirmed by their community and by yeah, health care. It continues after transitioning. These, are, these people, kids like this deserve our help and our support. But the notion of convince, working with them to say someone who was born a male that they're a female, that doesn't help them. Well, and when the language is done, we may very well see uh, carve-outs for parental guidance and those sorts of things. We just don't know. We don't know what it's going to have in it yet. Let me take another break, and we'll continue this discussion as well. Voters are heading to the polls with more information than ever. There's a lot out there, but how much can you trust? The surge of misinformation heading your way and how to separate the real from the fake. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Have you ever experienced a wish come true? For a child battling a critical illness, a wish come true can be a turning point. One song, one dance, one game, one adventure, one moment changes everything. Make-A-Wish needs your support to grant the wish of every eligible child. Visit wish.org now to help grant more life-changing wishes. Together, we can transform lives one wish at a time. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. President Trump posted this clip making it look like Speaker Pelosi was ripping up his State of the Union address during a tribute to the Tuskegee Airmen. So now let's put them side by side. On the left, the video posted online, and then on the right, the action in real time. Now, listen, Pelosi was criticized for tearing the speech up, even by some Democrats. But to be clear, this happened at the very end of President Trump's State of the Union address. So let's talk about this misinformation that's heading our way. Linda Bowers is here. She is former director of the Ohio Township Association and current Lafayette Township trustee. Mark Weaver's back with us. He does a little bit of everything. He's an author, media law attorney, crisis communications advisor, and also adjunct professor. Molly O'Shaughnessy is a principal at EMC Research. She is an expert in political research and polling. And Democratic State Representative Erica Crawley is back at the Face the State table. She's a lawyer, military veteran who serves Ohio's 26th district. The dispatch had a headline this week that said there is a tsunami of misinformation coming in 2020. Mark, what do you think is coming and then how do we fight it? Well, there's been misinformation in politics since there's been politics, and and, and democracy is not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. It requires voters to do their homework. One of the other things that's going on in Ohio is, and Mark can probably do this better than I can, but a few years ago there was a Supreme Court case that said 
it's okay to lie in campaigning. Um, used to be we could file complaints against people who lied on, on the other side of, of a campaign and, and they, their feet would be held to the ground and they would be embarrassed and sometimes fined and all of those things. But now the Supreme Court says that the way to counter that is to tell the truth louder. And that takes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And in the last election, in, in 2018, we saw a lot of straying across the lines. Um, I think in 2018, we're just going to see it. And it's on both sides. Yeah. Well, they're just going to put it out there, and good luck, voters. Molly, you research this stuff. Is there a tsunami coming? Uh, yeah, I mean, they've tried to, to limit sort of how you can target online, on Facebook, on other platforms, but I think we're still going to see a ton of it and um, coming from across the ocean as much as across political lines. Um, and, uh, you know, if it, if it sounds too good to be true or fits perfectly with your opinion, it, you know, you might need to question that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is as much as we like to criticize the mainstream media, they do a lot better job vetting um, uh, their information than what you're seeing on Facebook. Representative, you've got the last word today. I saw you nodding in my periphery when Mark was talking about for people to do their homework out there. Absolutely. I say that all the time when I'm in the community. I think everyone needs to be out there doing their own homework, talking to candidates if there is an opportunity to do so. We see it nationally. We also see it on the local level, too, um, with disinformation. And so I think it's important for voters to be educated and um, check their resources. Um, But if there's any chance that you can talk to a candidate about where they stand on issues, or hold their feet to the fire, you absolutely should, and get it from their horse's mouth. Wait a minute, a novel idea, talking to people <laughs> instead of getting, and getting away from the <laughs> right. keyboard. Okay, this has been a good talk and a good discussion. By the way, you're heading out of the country for a few months. I am. When you get back from New Zealand, come back and see us. I'm going to go write my second book, so I'll come see you when it's done. Let's talk about that. You Safe travels thank to you, you as well. Much. Thank you all for being here this weekend. We thank you for joining us as well. We say this every single Sunday. If it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. Again, that's Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Listen, my life changed because someone was there to get me to use drugs. No one can understand. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. I'm realizing that I... I need help. I'm listening. I need help. I'm realizing that I think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to understand. No one can get me to use drugs. My life changed because someone was there to listen. One in seven Americans will struggle with addiction during their lifetime. Want to know how you can help? Go to heretolisten.com for tips and tools to help turn addiction around. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council. We're just about a week removed from Valentine's Day, a time when people are celebrating the relationships with the ones they love. Sometimes couples uh, evaluating the status of their relationship as well. And uh, right now, Edward Jones is in the Valentine's sort of day spirit. They're thinking about Americans' relationship with money, and they've just released a new survey, taking a closer look at how people feel about their relationship with money. Thanks for staying tuned to Columbus Perspective. I'm Daniel Barnett. Today, I'm speaking with David Gottlieb. David is an Edward Jones financial advisor from Pepper Pike, Ohio. And uh, he's going to talk today a little bit about that study called It's not you. It really is me. David, thank you for joining me today on Columbus Perspective. 
All right. Thanks a lot for having me today. So as I just mentioned, Edward Jones recently did this survey. It's not you. It really is me. Can you tell us a little bit about the findings of that survey and what it revealed about how folks feel about their relationship with money? Um, yeah, I think, you know, when you when you take a look at um, some of the things, they, they broke it out by ages. So if you look at millennials, um, surprisingly, they, they get – they they get the bad rap sometimes, but they they actually forty eight percent of them consider themselves savers, not spenders. Uh, Gen Xers forty six percent, and uh, and baby boomers were fifty six percent said they were savers. Um, so it kind of debunks that myth that millennials aren't as financially focused. Um, so that's one of the things that you're seeing. You're also seeing millennials reported having more emergency savings. So I see that with clients. I it's fascinating meeting younger people, they are more aware um, of the savings process. I think part of it is they're walking into companies now with 401k plans and they're already thinking that through. Um, And I think they're hearing just a little bit more of it. So let's talk about that. You are an Edward Jones financial advisor in Pepper Pike, correct? Correct. And and for those who aren't familiar, where is Pepper Pike on the map? So we're on the east side of Cleveland, um, right off Chagrin Boulevard. I've been in this office. Uh, I've been here with Edward Jones on my 25th year. Excellent. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, so you were talking a bit about your clients. What is the average age of client that you see in your office, or is there an average age? There, there really isn't an average age. I, I will say there, there's a larger percentage that are older um, because kind of worked with them when they were younger, and now 25 years later, they're now walking into retirement. Um, but I work with a lot of young people also. I'm, I'm just, I, I think Edward Jones and what we believe in is that the goal of a financial advisor is to help people save. So the more we can spend time with young people teaching them to save money and put money away, um, the sooner they'll be able to retire, the sooner they'll be able to do more things. So I spend a lot of time with my clients' kids now. Um, just sitting down and teaching them how to save a hundred dollars a month. I just did it with my with my daughter that went off the for a job in New York City and said, "You're going to put a hundred dollars a month away." So just in showing them how much that can grow to in a in a in a ten twenty thirty year period. Um, so it's you know teaching teaching them doesn't take a lot of money to make money. It's just a matter of being disciplined to do it. Well, and I, w- I wanted to ask you about that. I think there's this conception that in order to need the services of a financial advisor, you've got to have a lot of money. Um, do you find that to be true, that people with higher household incomes are the ones that are coming to see you more? Um, well, I, I think I think you do see, you do see that. Um, I do a lot of retirement plans out of companies, so I, I, I love getting out there and talking to people that aren't being talked to. You know, as, as this has transitioned... Uh, the world is is going to you know some of this do it yourself again type world. I find that if we aren't out talking to people when it comes to money, they won't save. They're going to say they're going to do it, but unless you pull them and hold them tight and say, "Hey, you have to do this," make them a little uncomfortable doing something, they aren't going to save money and, and keep putting it away. You know, you live in a we live in a spending world um, for I don't know how many last twenty thirty years. People talk about debt first as opposed to saving first. 
I know one of the things that that causes some tension when people are thinking about their financial futures is short-term goals versus long-term goals. Can you talk about how mm-hmm. like how that tension exists and maybe some examples of what you would consider a short-term versus a long-term goal? Sure. So again, it's important to have both of them. I think one of the one of the big things I I found out through the 2008 crisis, financial crisis, we were not hitting people's short-term goals as well as the long-term goals. Everything is talked about retirement, and we were all forgetting to talk about having short-term money, short-term goals of things that you want to achieve, as opposed to strictly looking at retirement money. So I, we're finding that you know the, the intentions people, they need to look at that short-term goal a little, little better and have more cash on hand. So they have money to live because when they don't have that meeting the short-term goals, they just decide to borrow more money and that just puts people into debt. So you had mentioned earlier talking to your own daughter about some small steps towards savings. Um, I'm going to ask you to give some free financial advice. (laughs) What are some good small (laughs) steps that folks can take to, to start uh, saving better, working towards their financial goals? And then what are some maybe overhaul steps that folks might need to take to do the same thing? Well, I I think think the most important thing is, you know, the old old theory of pay yourself first. The important part is if, if you're starting out, and you're younger, is automatically have money come directly out of your bank account into an investment account. Whether it's, I don't care the amount, $25, $50, $100, what it is to start, money will compound over time, and it's going to grow. The toughest part for people is discipline, and when you see small amounts, and if I told you you need a large amount for a long-term goal, you're going to say, ah, heck with it, I'm never going to get there. Well, it works. You just have to be disciplined because the numbers get bigger. So it's it's trying to get people to save it. If you're on a 401k plan or you know you know doing that, I, I'm just a believer in is if you if you're putting away three percent, then next year increase it by one percent. Most of this is all psychology that we do every day. Is getting people to think differently, um, and and also look at if, if you look at ways that you can save. And also look at where are you wasting money. It's very easy today. Everybody has, you know, all their all their little things that hit their credit card for twenty dollars here, thirty dollars here, ten dollars here. Well, that all adds up. And then they say they can't save. Well, here's a great way to look at it. Look at your budget and say, hey, I can find other ways to save money. And if someone were coming in to meet with you for the first time, what sort of questions would you be asking them? What kind of what things would they need to bring with them and answers would they need to bring with them? Yeah, the, the first thing we want to do is sit down and go through and analyze and come up with uh, what we call our financial foundation. We want to know where do you where do you have money? Are you saving your retirement plans? We want to look through statements. Do you have life insurance? We want to look at your whole financial picture. Um, and then we also want to look at where your debt is. You know, I, I, I think the, the fascinating part is today is Everybody lives off of what's the payment. I always ask my clients, you know, when we're coming in, sit down with them. I want you to bring in the mortgage statement. The question I ask them is, what's your mortgage? And most people tell me the amount they pay monthly. My thought is I want them to put in is, how much did you actually borrow? So we're, 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 we talk in that part to come up with everything they have, bring in their statements. Let's look through it and come up with a great plan for them. 
if folks are interested in learning more about uh, getting with a financial advisor, how do they reach out to somebody like you? So the best way, you know, if, if you're looking, obviously, Edward Jones, we'd love to help anyone we can. There's local offices of Edward Jones just about in any every town in this country. Um, there's an Edward Jones advisor there. We have over 18,000 offices um, that are around the country. So you can look up, walk into an Edward Jones office. You can look us up through the Internet or or. I don't, I don't think there's a phone book to look at anymore, but um, you can look at uh, on the Internet. You can pull us up and uh, find a local office, stop in and say, I want to sit down and start saving money. Once again, I've been speaking with David Gottlieb, an Edward Jones financial advisor from Pepper Pike, Ohio. David, thank you so much for helping to shed some light on how folks can have a better relationship with their money and how to get started down that road. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot for having me today. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of 97.1 The Fan. You can tune into Columbus Perspective each Sunday at 6 a.m. on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And each Sunday at 7 a.m. on WBNS FM Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Once again, I'm Daniel Barnett, and this has been Columbus Perspective. Perspective.